expressed it in what I'm preaching. When he was a little kid, he said, I read Samuel and Kings as much as I read The Lord of the Rings. He was fascinated with this. And so I said, well, Dan, I said, it's going to be a smack in the face today to some people that might not be familiar with this passage. And uh, I'm looking forward to reading this. This is God's word. So you'll find it on page, um, thank you, Brenda, for putting this in the worship folder every week, page 312, 2 Kings chapter 6. We'll begin with verse 24, and we'll go through 720. 2 Kings 6, 24, through all of chapter 7. Afterward, Ben-Hadad, king of Syria, mustered his entire army and went up and besieged Samaria. And there was a great famine in Samaria as they besieged it, until a donkey's head was sold for 80 shekels of silver and the fourth part of a cab of dove's dung for five shekels of silver. Now as the king of Israel was passing by on the wall, a woman cried out to him, saying, Help, my lord, O king. And he said, If the Lord will not help you, how shall I help you? From the threshing floor or from the winepress? And the king asked her, What is your trouble? She answered, This woman said to me, Give your son that we may eat him today, and we will eat my son tomorrow. So we boiled my son and ate him. And on the next day I said to her, Give your son that we may eat him but she has hidden her son. When the king heard the words of the woman, he tore his clothes. Now he was passing by on the wall, and the people looked, and behold, he had sackcloth beneath on his body. And he said, May God do so to me and more also, if the head of Elisha, the son of Shaphat, remains on his shoulders today. Elisha was sitting in his house, and the elders were sitting with him. Now the king had dispatched a man from his presence, but before the messenger arrived, Elisha said to the elders, Do you see how this murderer has sent to take off my head? Look, when the messenger comes, shut the door and hold the door fast against him. Is not the sound of his master's feet behind him? And while he was still speaking with them, the messenger came down to him and said, This trouble is from the Lord. Why should I wait for the Lord any longer? But Elisha said, this is chapter 7, verse 1 now. But Elisha said, hear the word of the Lord. Thus says the Lord, tomorrow about this time, a sea of fine flour shall be sold for a shekel, and two seahs of barley for a shekel at the gate of Samaria. Then the captain on whose hand the king leaned said to the man of God, If the Lord himself should make windows in heaven, could this thing be? But he said, You shall see it with your own eyes, but you shall not eat of it. Now there were four men who were lepers at the entrance to the gate. And they said to one another, Why are we sitting here until we die? If we say, Let us enter the city, the famine is in the city, and we shall die there. And if we sit here, we die also. So now come, Let us go over to the camp of the Syrians. If they spare our lives, we shall live, and if they kill us, we shall but die. So they arose at twilight to go to the camp of the Syrians. But when they came to the edge of the camp of the Syrians, behold, there was no one there. For the Lord had made the army of the Syrians hear the sound of chariots and of horses, the sound of a great army, 
so that they said to one another, Behold, the king of Israel has hired against us the kings of the Hittites and the kings of Egypt to come against us. So they fled away in the twilight and abandoned their tents, their horses and their donkeys, leaving the camp as it was and fled for their lives. And when these lepers came to the edge of the camp, they went into a tent and ate and drank, and they carried off silver and gold and clothing and went and hid them. Then they came back and entered another tent and carried off things from it and went and hid them. Then they said to one another, We are not doing right. This day is a day of good news. If we are silent and wait until the morning light, punishment will overtake us. Now therefore come, let us go and tell the king's household. So they came and called to the gatekeepers of the city and told them, We came to the camp of the Syrians, and behold, there was no one to be seen or heard there, nothing but horses tied and donkeys tied and the tents as they were. Then the gatekeepers called out, and it was told within the king's household. And the king rose in the night and said to his servants, I will tell you what the Syrians have done to us. They know that we are hungry. Therefore they have gone out of the camp to hide themselves in the open country, thinking, when they come out of the city, we shall take them alive and get into the city. And one of the servants said, Let some men take five of the remaining horses, seeing that those who are left here will fare like the whole multitude of Israel who have already perished. Let us send and see. So they took two horsemen, and the king sent them after the army of the Syrians, saying, Go and see. So they went after them as far as the Jordan, and behold, all the way was littered with garments and equipment that the Syrians had thrown away in their haste. And the messengers returned and told the king. Then the people went out and plundered the camp of the Syrians. So a sea of fine flour was sold for a shekel, and two seas of barley for a shekel, according to the word of the Lord. Now the king had appointed the captain on whose hand he leaned to have charge of the gate. And the people trampled him in the gate, so that he died, as the man of God had said when the king came down to him. For when the man of God had said to the king, Two seahs of barley shall be sold for a shekel, and a sea of fine flour for a shekel, about this time tomorrow in the gate of Samaria, the captain had answered the man of God, If the Lord himself should make windows in heaven, could such a thing be? And he had said, You shall see it with your own eyes, but you shall not eat of it. And so it happened to him, for the people trampled him in the gate, and he died. Please be seated. Let's bow our heads and pray. Lord, thank you. Thank you, God, that you are there in the midst of your people when we gather. We thank you for all the praising we've gotten to do, for all the praying we've gotten to do, and the confessing and the hearing that you're a God who forgives our sins. And now, Lord, with your help, we need to understand this passage, and your Holy Spirit will help us. So help me, Lord, the one who's prepared and studied. Help me as I deliver. Uh, May it be worthy of the beautiful sacred text that you've given us. And help us as we interact with this today. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, if I could sing, as I'm looking for an introduction, if I could sing, I'd sing the theme from the Partridge family, just to get your attention. Remember that? That peacock would come out and shake around, kick that little uh, 
egg off its tail feathers, and they'd say, hello, world, there's a song we're singing to make you happy. whole lot of love is what we're bringing to make you happy. Come on, get happy, get happy, get happy. Um, that is a fatal flaw in many of the so-called churches today. The thought that church has to be a place where you're happy. There was an old television show that was, in my opinion, never really funny. But it's so pathetic today that people talk about the old days when it was funny. And they would do a skit, and a couple of these characters would come out. I'm Honk, Hans, and I'm Franz, and we're here to pump you up. And they'd come out as weightlifters. Uh, the church trying to say, pump you up, pump you up, get excited, get happy, be happy. Come on, you've got to be happy. If anybody leaves here sad, uh, we've failed in our mission. If anybody leaves here with anything other than just this unadulterated joy, we failed. Uh, that is not the mission of the church. That does not reflect life. C.S. Lewis said, I didn't go to religion to make me happy. I always knew a bottle of port would do that. If you want a religion to make you feel really comfortable, I certainly don't recommend Christianity. And he was right. I read something about 30 years ago. It stayed with me. I looked it up this week just to get the words right. It was a book somebody wrote about the church. And uh, he, he wrote it. Uh, here's, here's word for word how he wrote it. It was in a chapter titled, Give Me That Hot Tub Religion. And the writer shares this. He said, we've encountered this easy Christianity mindset over and over again. As in the case of two friends to whom my wife and I have witnessed for years. One Sunday when we were in their city, they agreed to accompany us to church. On the way, the woman said, oh, I hope the pastor will cheer me up today. I'm so depressed. I found a dead bird at the back door this morning. Another longtime acquaintance told me he was not, that he was now attending a unity church. Why, I asked. You're a Christian and that is a cult. Really? The man looked surprised. Of course it is, I said. They don't believe in the resurrection or even one true God. But my wife and I love it, he said. We always come away feeling better. Um, I would say a passage about eating babies and trampled to death and all that, and if our goal was to make you feel better, that was kind of a, a slap in the face. Um, uh, sometimes I call attention to the food for thought. Sometimes I don't. This, this week I will. Look at, uh, at John Newton this week, uh, something I read earlier in the week and, and, and thought it would be helpful for us. He's writing a letter. This is back in 1777. He said, My dear sir, you say you are more disposed to cry misere than hallelujah. Why not both together? Why not both together? When the treble is praise and heart humiliation for the bass, the melody is pleasant and the harmony good. However, if not both together, we must have them alternately. Not all singing, not all sighing, but an interchange and balance that we may be neither lifted too high nor cast down too low, which would be the case if we were very comfortable or very sorrowful for a long continuance. But though we change, the Savior changes not. All our concerns are in his hands and therefore safe. 
Why else would Jesus say, weep with those who weep, laugh with those who laugh. Uh, We know what life is. We know that life has its high points and its low points. Uh, Sometimes we're up, sometimes we're down. That's a, a, a place we really have in common with everybody. That's believers and non-believers alike. The difference is the believers have Jesus in their lives. Jesus as their Lord, the Holy Spirit indwelling them. And they have a perspective and we look at the long game. And so we don't get so overwhelmed by a little shred of happiness that gets out of proportion. We don't get so down when things don't go our way. Uh, We know where we're going. We know that there's a God. I thought about it, and I was too late for this week's bulletin, uh, but uh, I read that uh, John Calvin in his liturgy, uh, every Sunday uh, in in Calvin's Geneva, the lead-off scripture in his liturgy was Psalm 124.8. Our help is in the name of the Lord who made heaven and earth. And if we live lives where our personal liturgy our worship begins at least with the thought, if not with the verse, that our help is in the name of the Lord who made heaven and earth. How would that affect our lives? Boy. The message of the Bible. So you say, okay, so what's the message of the church? Anger, meanness, come in. I read a t-shirt this week that was so funny. I said to Paul, this is so funny. I, I, don't, I, I don't envision me saying it to anybody. I need to have it said to me every now and then. But this t-shirt said this. Um, I poured you a big, drink, a big glass of get over it. Oh, and here's a straw so you can suck it up. Um, <laughs> that was clever. <laughs> I like that. A big glass. And I need a big glass of get over it. I need my straw to suck it up. But that's not the message of the church either. The message of the church uh, it might include that. But we're saying, listen, there is a God in heaven that we can turn to. There is a motivation that comes from being a believer. We have a better message. We have a proper tone. And the message is there's an ultimate deliverance from difficult times we face. Here's what Jesus said in John 16, 33, and then we'll get into the text. Jesus said, I have told you these things so that in me you may have peace. In this world you will have trouble, but take heart. I have overcome the world. So four points this morning. They're going to be this. Desperate need, that's chapter 6, verses 24 through 33. Two, an astounding promise, that's verses 7, 1 and 2. Three, unlikely messengers, that's chapter or verses 3 through 15. And finally, the tragic fulfillment for the God denier. That's in 7, 16 through 20. So we start out with a desperate need. It pretty much paints a picture. And we understand desperate need. If you're boiling kids and eating them, and that's not, that's not something that hasn't happened elsewhere throughout history. Went to the library, and New Milford's got this great new library. Oh, man, it's great. You ought to see that new Milford library, the way, we, the way that my tax dollars and some of yours have, have paid for that library. And I went there, and I checked out a book, and I said, I, yeah, I, I took it back. I said, I just can't. I'm fascinated with Stalingrad, but you don't have to hear about Stalingrad today. I took the book back. Um, but you think about what people have gone through in times of siege, in times of war, in times of famine. These people had famine and war at the same time. 
and they were desperate. It's devastating. Could they have dealt with either issue if that was their only issue? Well, we'll never know. But boy, both at the same time, and there they were. And there's a picture painted of what they were going through. High prices. Okay. So a shekel, uh, looking it up, and, and different historians look. A shekel in those days, from what I have read and seen from people that are smarter than me that have done the research, a shekel was about a month's wage. They were out of food. 80 shekels, 80 months. If you, wanted, if you were hungry and didn't want to eat somebody's baby, you ate a donkey's head. 80 months, six and a half years wages. Five months wages for one cab. A cab was a quart or a liter, roughly, of dove's dung. Buy some dove's dung to go along with your donkey head. And that's dinner, if you're lucky. If you're one of the ones that is not starving to death. That's desperate times. cab was a pickup load instead of just a quart or a liter, would you pay it and eat that? I'd make a bet if you were starving and near death we'd eat it. We'd fight over it if we lost our faith, lost our politeness. News flash, they were starving. Some of you might have had parents that never allowed you to say the word starving in your house because people really did starve. Um, Starving was a bad word. Don't say, I'm starving. You don't know what starving is, is what some some of you might have heard. I'll tell this again, because people might not. This is what your husband told me, and his husband, Doyle. I was preaching in the Chinese church, and I, I, I referenced something about how when we were kids, they would say, people are starving in China. So Anna's from Taiwan. Doyle's from China. Anna said... Doyle said that the Taiwan kids always heard, eat your food because people are starving in China. And Doyle said, over in China, we heard, eat your food, the kids are starving in Taiwan, um, <laughs> which was an interesting thing. I enjoyed, enjoyed that conversation with him. But the, the fact of the matter is, these people were starving, and they were desperate. The women and sons, the Bible presents it as true. I'm always cynical, but not when it comes to the Bible. This was a real incident where the woman really told the king this. And the king reacted as he did. And we can say, well, at least the king was there. At least they had the government to help them. The government was there. The government will feed them. The government will give them better food than doves done. The government will give them better than a donkey's head. They got the government. The king's right there. He's on the scene. How can the government help them? And that's a false idol. All the king could do is tear his clothes and show his distress and get mad at God's spokesman. Elisha represented the word in those days. The word of God they got was not in the form of a Bible. It was in the form of the prophet. And all he could do was tear his clothes, virtue signal, oh, I'm in distress. Everybody sees his distress and his helplessness. And all he can do is say, I'm going to kill Elisha by the end of the night. That's what the government can do. Barbara Tuckman, a wonderful historian from a generation back. She wrote a book 
And in her book, she said, revolutions produce other men, not new men. Revolutions produce other men, not new men. You still have human leaders, and human leaders are fallible, they're sinful, and if they're not Christians, they can get as desperate and as bad as can be. Those historians, Pete Townsend and Roger Daltrey, said, meet the new boss, same as the old boss. It's, it's what we do when we are wrong to put our faith in any government as God. If I'm going to choose an idol to meet all my needs, calm my fears, give me something to hope in, submit to, keep me alive, guard my health, tell me the truth, give me internet that works, I'm sure not going to waste my idolatry on a government. Got to have it. Necessary evil. But any time people in history have looked to any human in place of God, they've been disappointed. And this king, oh, he went out, he had sackcloth. Uh, in the old days, and you, you know the phrase, I don't need to explain it too much. Sackcloth and ashes. You, you wear sackcloth, you tear your clothes, you put on the sackcloth, you sit in ashes, you smear them all over you, you roll around in them, you show everybody that you are in mourning. This was his virtue signaling uh, thoughts and prayers. Tweet. But this king was not godly. The leader of God's people turned on God. And as I said, Elisha represented the word. And the word has got to go. And people do this. Things get bad for them. They get angry at God. They can't get to God, so they get mad and leave the church. Or they get mad at the pastor or get mad at their godly parent who tried to tell them about God. It's your fault. It's God's fault. I'm angry at you. And he says, what did he say? Woe be to me. How is his language? He says, if he's not dead um, by tonight, if he's not dead, verse 31, may God do so to me and more also. If the head of Elisha, the son of Shaphat, remains on his shoulders today. We're going to separate that head from that body. Not a godly king who was assigned to be the leader of God's people who were under siege. People turn on the Lord all the time when they're in trouble. Or they turn to the Lord. Which will it be for you? Job's wife, curse God and die. Well, she knew that God was the source. She knew God was there. She knew God was ultimately in charge of even what the devil was doing, and and he was allowing this. And her anger then was at God. Just curse God and die, she said to Job. The messenger coming, and Elisha being aware of the threat, the messenger said, This trouble is from the Lord. Why should I wait for the Lord any longer? And I would say to us, our temptation even as believers can go along those lines when things pile on us. And plan ahead for how you're going to react in your day of trouble. And a good place to start is Isaiah 40, verses 30 and 31, where Scripture tells us that even youths 
shall faint and be weary, and young men shall fall exhausted. But those who wait for the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings like eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not faint. Wait for the Lord. This man said, I'm not going to wait for God anymore. God hasn't delivered us. I'm saying wait for the Lord from Scripture. The Lord is saying from his word, wait for him. Wait on him. God is patient. God leads while Satan rushes. Wait and see what God is going to do. God's timetable and your timetable and my timetable are different. So speaking of timetables, God has a timetable of his own. And so we move to the second point, just these two verses in chapter 7. The astounding promise from God. Elisha says, I'm going to tell you this. Hear the word of the Lord. Not hear my word, not wishful thinking. Hear the word of the Lord. Thus says the Lord, tomorrow about this time, a sea of fine flour will be sold for a shekel, two seas of barley for a shekel at the gate of Samaria. And the captain on whose hand the king leaned said, if God himself made a window in heaven and started dumping things over the side, could this thing be? And he said, you will see it with your eyes, but you won't eat it. Okay? It's an astounding promise from the Lord. Hear the word of the Lord. Not, wouldn't it be nice, not if we all get together and, and hum and hold hands and wishful think we can make something happen. Not that. But there is a word from the Lord to believe in. He didn't say it would be free food or not really all that expensive. If you do the math, the prices are coming down. Uh, a a sia, a, a Sia of wheat, that uh, Sia is about seven and a half quarts. That's still a, a good month's wages. But he says things are going to start looking normal. Things are going to come down in price. Uh, the worst is going to be over and it's going to stabilize. And I'm telling you this. Relief from the siege. And the king's servant ridiculed it. Now, we are told in both New Testament and Old Testament, to have faith. We're told to have faith. Now, <laughs> made me love my professor all the more. Here's how he wrote this. And this is kind of a funny way of, of, uh, of him letting us know this and, and distinguishing what, what's the faith in? What, what's the faith in? What kind of faith? Is it wishful thinking? Dr. Davis said, Note how the Old Testament expects and demands faith just like the New. But it's crucial to note what sort of faith it demands. It requires that we believe what Yahweh has promised. And, you know, Yahweh is another way of saying Jehovah, uh, the highest name for God. So what Yahweh has promised. We are not called to have some general faith that God will do unheard of, bizarre, or unlikely things. As though if we only squeeze our eyes shut, clasp our hands tight, and pump up enough faith to believe that God will do whatever we want. You may want to believe that God will drop a 12-foot-long, 4-feet-wide pickle on your church wiener roast along with a 20-gallon pot of ketchup, but I doubt he'll do it. Not because God doesn't seem to flaunt pickles on steroids, but because he hasn't promised to supply strange condiments for your church picnic. But God promises deliverance, however wild it may seem, and we are required to believe it. We must believe what Yahweh says, 
no matter how unlikely. So get away from the bizarre, and we scratch our heads. We say, well, what has God promised? What are some examples of things in God's word that God has promised that we have to believe? We're required to believe these things. Well, here's one. Jesus talking in John 14, 19. Yet a little while, and the world will see me no more. But you still see me. Uh, because I live, you also will live. John 6, 40. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. That's a clear promise. You look to Jesus, you put your faith in Jesus, you will live, you will be raised in the last day, you will be in heaven. That's a promise. And you're required to believe that. Here's one. Philippians 2.10. Doesn't seem likely right now as we look at the world that hates Jesus. But here's, here's one, a promise, uh, Philippians 2.10, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Believe that day is coming when everyone will confess that Jesus is Lord. Didn't say everyone would go to heaven, but on their way to hell, you think they won't see Jesus as Lord? Another Christian t-shirt. Boy, I invest in t-shirt companies. People like me look at t-shirts. Here was a t-shirt I used to see. Every knee will bow one day. You think about that, and that's a promise that's true. How about this promise? Oh, it, it, people, good denominations are fighting this and fighting for the right wording. Here's one that's a promise. Romans 6.14. For sin will have no dominion over you, since you are not under law, but under grace. And this is denied by people who think that their sin, or their past, or just the fact that they were born this way makes them an exception. And that the Holy Spirit was in error when he spoke these words through Paul. Your sin will not have dominion over you. You're a Christian. You're under law, not under law, you're under grace. Identify as a Christian. We're saved. Don't identify yourself by your sin that you struggle with, that you think you'll never get over. Finally, um, here's one. John 10, 28. I give my sheep eternal life, and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. You're required to believe that once you are saved by God, once, once the Holy Spirit has worked in you, and you have repented of your sins, and you put your faith in Jesus Christ alone for your salvation... Jesus promises uh, you can't be unsaved. If you saved yourself, if you worked and did enough Hail Marys and enough stuff and, and you worshiped and did enough religious stuff uh, that you could save yourself, then you could probably fall away and unsave yourself. But if it's God who does the saving, God's the one who is not going to unsave you. You can't unsave yourself. Next uh, part of this passage, unlikely messengers. Two groups of unlikely messengers. We read about them in, in chapter 7, verses 3 through 15. You can kind of scan along and follow along. I won't, re, I won't read the passage again um, because we read it. But look, the lepers outside the gate. Here they were. They were unlikely. They were outcasts. They weren't inside the gate because they had leprosy and they were uh, supposed to be remain outside. They were dying. What an unlikely group of people 
to bring good news of deliverance. Now, the deliverance is from God. The deliverance is not from the lepers and certainly not anyone inside the gate. But it reminds us of the gospel where God does the saving and God chooses to use unlikely people to carry the good news to people he's also going to save. The Bible says, how shall they hear without a preacher? It says, hey, you watchmen on the wall, you see the opposing armies coming. Your job is to warn. You warn, you do your job. How shall they hear without that preacher? God chooses to use fallen, unlikely people to bring the good news. I think the best uh, phrase I've ever heard to describe evangelism or talking to people about the Lord, I, I like you know, phrases like share your faith or you know, tell people. But what is a definition of evangelism? And it applies to this passage. One beggar telling another beggar where to find bread. Wow. I'm fallen. I'm sinful. I'm weak. I'm a coward. But boy, I know where there's salvation I know where there's forgiveness. I know where there's eternal life. And I can go to that place, and God's brought me to that place, and I can tell other people, uh, there's enough to go around. There's, there's a, a, more than enough to go around. You're not losing your share of, of Christianity or something. If, if more people become Christians, God's grace is huge. One beggar telling another beggar where to find bread. And they were partying, and all of a sudden their conscience kicked in, And they said, um, why keep this to to ourselves? People are dying in that city. They're eating kids in that city. We're guilty if we don't go tell them. And my question for you that we'll come back to is this. Do you believe that even if they waited until morning light, they would be guilty? That's what they said. They said, if we even wait till the morning light, if we sleep on this and go uh, and don't tell, we're guilty. Who knows? They say, well, we're pretty tired. Let's, let's haul some of this provision back off into the woods. We can sell it later on. Let's, let's work a little bit tonight, and we'll go in the morning. First thing in the morning, we'll get up, we'll have a breakfast, we'll go tell them. Well, what could happen that night? Well, for one thing, that other woman could find that other woman's kid. Well, a lot of things bad can happen in that city gate. Let's tell there was an urgency that they found. And then the other unlikely one is the nameless servant in the king's inner circle, verses 12 through 15. The king finds, but the king is so given up on God, so given up on God, because I know what they're doing. They're just hiding in the woods, and we're going to come out of the city, and then they're going to get in and get us, and I know exactly how this world works. Well, yeah, we're pretty smart. We know how the world works. How does God work? And it took another unnamed servant to say, wait a minute, king. We're dead if we stay here. Just as well send some people out there to see. And that person spoke up. That person in the halls of government spoke up and did the right thing. And God used that servant who essentially said, when you've got nothing, you've got nothing to lose. Preserve your life for what? Die by the sword. Go out in a blaze of glory. Or sit around in your sackcloth cursing God. Which is it? Go. And they went out and they discovered what was 
true in God's deliverance. I would say to us, and a reminder to all of us, you are not as obscure or insignificant as you might think you are. You're not, you might think, well, who am I? Well, who are the lepers? Who's that unnamed servant? Who am I? God chooses to use us, insignificant people. A person's soul is is of inestimable value. And there's provision made for saving souls at the cross and the empty tomb. So be a good, unclean outcast and tell people about that. Be a good non-entity and share the gospel. Why not? Finally, the tragic fulfillment for the God denier. Verses 16 through 20. And, uh, you know, I don't even want to put the phrase poetic justice with it. It's just quite a story. The people went out. They plundered the camp of the Syrians. Everything that he said was true about a sea of flour for a shekel. The captain who denied God was appointed to have charge of the gate. And the people trampled him in the gate. And the writer says a couple of times by repeating this, this is God's word that came true. Among God's people are scoffers and deniers. You look at God's people in the Old Testament, you look at the church these days, the church, the denominations. I've had a couple of conversations. Man, they are fallen. They're under siege from the world, and they are just fallen to where they just... Like, like that king would do to Elisha, cut his head off. They just say, forget the word. We've got to really go along, and, and they've, they've, they've bowed. And among God's people are scoffers and deniers. What are we supposed to do? What's, what, what happens to those of us who don't deny that God is the deliverer? Romans 10, 9 through 11. Because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord... Believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead. You will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. For the scripture says, everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame. And then you see the flip side of that. People in churches, people that that have the trappings, people that might even say the same creeds we do, uh, have some variation of baptism, some variation of the Lord's Supper, some, some kind of a thing, and they are as ungodly as the world. And they deny the power of God. They deny that Jesus is Lord and that salvation is found in none other. So here's the flip side. Here's how it ends up. Revelation 21, 5 through 8. And he was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. Also he said, Write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. And he said to me, It is done. I am the Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty I will give from the spring of the water of life without payment. To the one, the one who conquers will have his heritage, and I will be his God, and he will be my son. But for the cowardly, the faithless, the detestable, as for murderers, the sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars, their portion will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. And within the church, there are the faithless. That guy that said, God won't do this. God poked holes in heaven. He couldn't do this. And he was there among God's people, denying God. 
and that king was there among God's people as the leader of God's people, so-called, wanting to kill the word. And that's the end. And this poor man saw, but he could not partake. And I think he was probably not scoffing at God's promise then. And you think of the rich man and Lazarus and looking across, and it was over. Wrap it up. A couple points as far as a conclusion. Just a summary of the, of the text. One, there are troubles in life, sometimes severe ones, but God has promised ultimate deliverance. And he also tells us he's here for us and with us in our earthly trials. John 16, 33. I have said these things to you that in me you have, may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation, but take heart, I've overcome the world. 1 John 5, 4. For everyone who has been born of God overcomes the world, and this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. Okay, that's the one. Trouble, it's there. Jesus Christ is stronger than that. Second, um, I'd be a pretty poor excuse for a pastor if I didn't talk about God's most awesome delivery of his people. Uh, As awesome as that delivery was, God making those Syrians hear what they thought was another army, making them flee. Uh, remember, last, last week, I think it was, or the week before, he made the chariots appear, and, and the servant could see that and be encouraged. This time, they, they didn't appear, but there was a sound and a noise, and they fled, and that was an awesome delivery. But that only points to the bigger delivery that God could do awesomely to deliver us and take care of us. Salvation at the cross. Who ever thought... Who ever thought of a God? They write stories about gods. Greek mythology, they, you know, Bull Finch writes all these things, documents all these things people have made up. They try to make God is. They write stories about God. Who ever wrote of a God that died for his people? God. We usually on, uh, we had something better to do last Friday night. We had some company over and we had our traditional corned beef and cabbage and all that stuff. But we usually watch that John Wayne movie, The Quiet Man. Remember that one? We'll probably catch that. This and if we're not too tired, we watch Darby O'Gill and the Little People. And those are, those are a couple of good St. Patty's Day things that we do and like to do. Um, in, in The Quiet Man, there's this, there's this little guy, little Flynn, they call him. And little Flynn is kind of watching the John Wayne character. And he uses this word, uh, he sees something that, that the John, Wayne, John Wayne's character is in. He goes, Homeric, Homeric. And he mutters that in his Irish, uh, meaning epic, meaning the Iliad and the Odyssey and things that you can't believe. Think of the biggest thing you could think of for salvation for people. Think of no other way. And think of God becoming flesh, taking on flesh and dying on behalf. Uh, that's just, it's, it's impossible to think. Uh, people that don't know and haven't been enlightened that laugh at us, I don't blame them for laughing at us. Laugh away. God took the sins of his people on himself and died in our place. The righteousness of God that we can now have and the sin and the penalty that we deserve are on him. And I never get tired of saying this, and I hope you don't get tired of, 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 of me saying it, but it just blew me away the first time I heard it. God endured the equivalent 
of an eternity in hell for each one of the people he came to save. And you think about that. And you think about deliverance and God, and this passage points to it. And then finally, just a question for us in our lives before we go to the Lord's table. Earlier I asked you the question, do you think that these lepers were telling the truth when they said, we'd be guilty if we didn't go tell people where deliverance was? Do you think that, that do you agree with them? Or were they being a little too hard on themselves? They said, we're not doing right. This is a day of good news. If we are silent and wait till the morning light, punishment will overtake us. Now, therefore, come. Let us go and tell the king's household. And I think you agree, and I agree. The treasure of being saved by God, of being forgiven, of being adopted into God's family, of a place being prepared for us in heaven is vastly more important than even the Syrian treasure was to those people. And we do have a story to tell to the nations. And my tendency in a, in a hostile world is to back off and curl up into a ball, cover my head, and, let, and, and just imagine and just say to the world, just go ahead and kick me, and I'm just going to try and survive. Keep my ribs, keep my head, keep my face, keep my vitals. And that's my posture when confronted with the world and my fear. And yet, Jesus said, go into all the world. Make disciples of all nations. Offense. Gates of hell won't prevail against you. And there's something for us to think about of how willing are we and how open are we to sharing the good news. And if God is God, won't he protect us? And if we get laughed at a little bit, so what? So what? And sometimes the ones who laugh the hardest and put up the most resistance or are the most hostile they're the ones it seems like are closest to salvation and they they put up the biggest fight so some lessons from this passage now we will we're going to leave second kings for a while and um, i'm looking forward to getting back to it but uh, as we approach easter and and uh, come in we're going to we're going to flip back uh, into the 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 new testament to, to john telling you it's the same gospel, the same message, old or new, so it doesn't matter where we're at as long as we're talking about Jesus and finding Jesus in it. But we're going to go to the gospel of John, and that's where we're coming for Easter and a few weeks beyond that. Let's pray. Take what we've heard today, and, 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 and let's pray and go to the table. Lord, thank you so much for your deliverance, your promised deliverance. Thank you that we are, uh, uh, that, that you've given us eyes to, to see and realize that There's good times, there's bad times, but you're the deliverer through all. And we thank you for the lessons we can learn and hopefully have learned from this text this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord